With Notre Dame Federal Credit Union, our online banking and mobile app are like having a branch right at your fingertips with everything you need to use and manage your accounts 24-7. Check us out at NotreDameFCU.com, insured by NCUA. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop. Our thanks to Notre Dame Federal Credit Union for underwriting this show. And uh, thank you, Bishop, for being here. You're welcome, Kyle. How's life going? It's going great. Yeah. 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 Having a good Easter season? Always. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, me too. Hallelujah. The feasting. Yes. 50 days. (laughs) I'm for it. Good. I'm here for it. (laughs) Yeah. So, Bishop, there's a document that came out from the USCCB, and I know it took a long time to put this together. Any documents that you're working on now before we get into this one? Like anything in progress that you're... No, right now I'd say most of our work on the committee, for the listeners, this is the USCCB Committee on Doctrine that I used to be chair of, but I'm still a member of. Now we're kind of reviewing some documents from other committees, which is one of our tasks that, let's say the Committee on Ecumenical Affairs or Committee on Laity, Marriage, Family, Life, and Youth. Let's say they're preparing a statement or a document. It always has to be reviewed by the Doctrine Committee, Mm -hmm. and we look at it for doctrinal content to make sure everything's good. Right now, we're doing more of that. I I don't we don't have any specific document because the last two documents we did on alkaline hydrolysis and um, that took a while, but not not as long as the one on the technological manipulation of the human body, mm-hmm. for example, the gender surgeries, et cetera. And that, that was a long time because that issue we were discussing even before I became chair of the committee, I was on the committee. So that's like five years ago. Yeah. And then the whole time I was committee chair, those three years we worked on it. And then a year after I was chair. Yeah. And the reason it took so long the document kind of took different forms in the sense that we looked at one point we were focusing on the anthropology. We were focusing on, you know, a critique, for example, of gender ideology. Mm -hmm. But as time went on, the focus became, okay, we've got to focus on the medical part. In other words, the medical ethics Mm -hmm. of this, that that's really, really important. So the end document is called a doctrinal note on moral limits to technological manipulation of the human body. Mm -hmm. So we put a lot of work into this. We not only reflected ourselves as a committee, but also we had communications with the Vatican. We had communications with other bishops. We had communications with medical professionals, Catholic medical moral theologians. So there was a lot, lot of input. And also with people who struggle with gender dysphoria Mm -hmm. or gender incongruence. Because that was also important to to kind of understand better the struggles that some people are going through. Sure. And I guess, what was some of those conversations and how did they look like? Because this is both a, a very broad kind of general application of some of these, I guess, ways of responding to technology and things on a general level. And then it does get specific, like you said, with gender dysphoria and, and those that are wanting to do different surgeries and things. Obviously, a population that is really, there's a struggle going on in in the world of people affirming and people maybe condemning uh, at being too extremes. And also, I mean, like high suicide rates among these. What was the process of how do we be sensitive to them as we share these truths of our faith? Yeah, I mean, I think that was something extremely important that 
while we're upholding the God-given order in creation, we have to understand, too, that there are real people involved yeah. here that have this affliction, and therefore we wanted to be compassionate, and we wanted to... And I think that tone is there in the document. I really yeah. do. Because we're called to pastoral care mm -hmm. for people who struggle with gender dysphoria. But in the end, our focus, and you'll see that kind of throughout the document, but our our focus was on Catholic health care services because this is a very real issue mm -hmm. for our Catholic health care institutions, our hospitals, et cetera. And, and the doctors and nurses that are, that are involved as well in public right. institutions. Right, exactly. Yeah. And hopefully, you know, this will be taken seriously, not only by Catholics, yeah. but maybe have others also be thinking about the ethical implications of this. Mm -hmm. uh, not everyone shares our Christian anthropology. Yeah. And, you know, that's something that is very strong in the document, especially at the beginning, because you have to have the framework for why we teach what we do. Mm -hmm. But I do know, I, I just read an article by a Jewish author who I read the article, it was like it was coming from a Catholic. Sure. He was, you know, basically the same position. So it's not just Catholic, but but I think we have the most, I would say, developed theology about uh, in, in this area of anthropology. But at the same time, do you think there's anything in this document that is uniquely Catholic? Like, I mean, this seems to be universal... There's a lot of people that could get on board with this that are not Catholic, wouldn't you say? Right. However, there are many Protestant denominations that support these sure. unethical procedures. And really, when you, and I've had some dialogues, they've really, you know, sadly kind of discarded some very fundamental biblical truths. Sure. And there are Protestants I know who are very upset with their leaders because they have strayed from what we would call biblical teaching, the biblical, you know, and, and I think that's, I mean, actually that's led to some converting to Catholicism, even on issues like marriage, not just on issues of gender, but even, you know, those denominations that, have, for example, that have approved same-sex marriage, you know, how is that reconcilable yeah. with, with the teachings of Jesus and the, biblical teaching in general. But this issue of technology is it's a really important thing for us to look at because this has been so rapid. We have these technological developments, and some are so good. I mean, mm -hmm. we're talking about cures for many human diseases, etc. There's promise for even more advances. So modern technology can be used for good, that's for sure. But there can also be the use of technology that is injurious to the human person, it injures people. So that's why you need careful moral discernment because the question is, is this going to be, is this good for the human person? Yeah. And, you know, we have to use criteria that respect the created order that's inscribed in our human nature. And the document begins really with a look at this. What is the natural order? Mm -hmm. You know, the Catholic Church, we have a very strong natural law tradition. And one of the fundamental tenets of our Christian faith is that there is an order 
in the natural world mm -hmm. that was designed by our creator and that this order is good. I mean, this goes back to the book of Genesis. Right. God saw what he had made and saw that it was good. And eventually very good when it comes and to humans. And very good when it comes yeah. to humans. And uh, so it's interesting in this, the Second Vatican Council in its Gaudium et Spes, which is the um, constitution on the church in the modern world, I'd like to quote that. It says, from the fact of being created, everything possesses its own stability, truth, and goodness, and its own laws and order, which should be respected by us in recognizing the methods that are appropriate to the various sciences and arts. Hmm. So basically, and Pope Benedict really emphasized this, the natural world has an inbuilt order. He called it a grammar, okay? A grammar uh -huh. that sets forth ends and criteria for its wise use, not its reckless exploitation. And, and then Pope Francis, I mean, he has been very strong on this. He's warned against what he calls a technological paradigm that treats the natural world as something formless and completely open to manipulation. That's the whole thing in Laudato Si about the importance of caring for the environment, caring for our common home. Yeah. We can't just manipulate creation as, as we want. I mean, when you think of things like pollution and all the things, uh, destruction, you know, of natural resources, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So intervening in nature, we have to also respect nature and not harm it in, mm -hmm. in, in these ways. And, and then when you get to human nature, I mean, then it's even more. Right. And that's what we're talking about here. There's an order in human nature that we're called to respect. Sure. So, so far, we're talking about natural law. Mm -hmm. Is that how you would describe that? Yes. And how is that, I guess, similar or different from uh, other types of law? Like, I, I don't even know what other yeah. options there are. Yeah. Besides. I mean, natural law, I don't remember if we've done an episode on natural law. I've spoken about it in many sure. homilies, especially at Red Masses, talking about how civil laws need to be mm. in line with natural law. Yeah. But really begin with, it's really natural law is part of divine law. Okay, divine okay. and natural law, because we're talking here about respecting our creator mm -hmm. and the law of God. And we see that, for example, in the Ten Commandments. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, about the human person, I mean, when you look at the created order, the utmost respect is due to, to human nature because humans are created in the image and likeness of God. Mm -hmm. You know, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, such an important fundamental teaching. So if we're going to find fulfillment as human beings and we're going to find true happiness, we have to respect that created order. And we did not create human nature. Right. Okay. Human, it's a gift. Mm -hmm. Human life is a gift from our loving creator. So we don't own it. We don't own our human nature. It's something that, that, you know, like the idea that, oh, I can do with my body what I want as if we could do whatever we please. And then when you look at technology, that's where you have to look. Okay. Is this respecting the human person and the created order? Mm -hmm. 
And now getting into looking at the human person and the order created by God, we're a unity, a body-soul unity. That is crucial, every human person. And the church throughout its history from the early centuries has rejected the heresy of dualism. Okay, dualism basically doesn't regard the body as an intrinsic part of the human person. It kind of can be like, and Pope Francis talks about this, as if the soul is all we are. And that, that that's, makes us complete. Mm -hmm. And the body's just an instrument. Right. No, that is not Catholic teaching. That is not the truth. Uh, so we have, even in the ancient times, early church, we had dualism as a heresy, and now we have it again in modern times. And the church always maintains, okay, there's a distinction between the soul and the body, but both, both are constitutive of what it means to be human, because we're not two natures. We're not two natures that are united. We're the union from a single nature. So hmm. the soul doesn't come to existence on its own, okay? Mm -hmm. it, and then just happen to be in the body as if it could be in another body, you know? Oh. A soul can never be in another body. Or this soul comes into existence together with our body. So hmm. being a human person, it includes this bodiliness, and part of this gets to what we're the big controversy these days. Human bodiliness is intrinsically connected with sexual differentiation. Mm. Just as every human person has a body, so also human bodies are sexually differentiated as male or female, like other mammals, mm -hmm. uh, you know. Because we read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, that same verse, when it says that we're created in God's image and likeness, it also says male and female, he created them. Right. And this is a duality. It's not a dualism. Okay. John Paul wrote beautifully about this. Can you explain the difference between a duality and dualism? Yeah. Duality. Okay. We are one person. We're one human being. And we have a soul and body. That's what means to be human. So this union forms a single nature. Dualism separates, okay? Dualism is like you can have your soul, that you're wholly human if you're just your soul. Okay. I mean, if, if that were the case, then why would we be teaching the importance of the resurrection of the body? Mm -hmm. Because we're not complete until our... Souls and bodies are reunited. Mm -hmm. You know, what is death? Death is the separation of soul and body. Okay, think about Jesus. When he died and his body was laid in the tomb, what happened to his human soul? He descended into the netherworld. Right. And he went and rescued all those who were in the state of death and really opened the gates of heaven for them. It was only when Jesus rose from the dead that his human body and human soul were reunited. And that's why the resurrection is so important. And, and he promised us that that would happen to us too if we remain united to him. So while we are alive in any state, so from fetus to adulthood, while we're alive, you cannot separate the body and the soul. Right. 
in death, our soul is separated from the body. Correct. But then in our resurrection, we'll be united body correct. and soul again. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. So what does that have to do with us on earth now? Yeah. And technology and mess. Yeah. So being man or being woman is part of our nature, our created nature. And it's something good. Male and female, he created them. This is God's will. This was willed by God. He is the creator. And so when we talk about bodiliness, we're not talking about part of that is the sexual differentiation as male and female. This is foundational. And this aspect of our existence as human beings, as male or female, is expressing also our unitive and procreative finality. In other words, this sexual difference that's part of our nature, it's not just physical, it's also psychological and spiritual. This isn't something insignificant. It also manifests how we reflect and image God as love, God who is love. The, there's this whole spousal character of the body expressing our masculinity or femininity. Now, this is beautifully written about by John Paul II in the Theology of the Body. Sure. Very sadly now, our culture has been inflicted by an ideology that promotes a personal identity and emotional intimacy radically separated from the biological difference between male and female. Mm. So what happens is human identity becomes the choice of the individual and one which can also change over time. Mm -hmm. In the document, The Joy of Love, Amoris Laetitia by uh -huh. Pope Francis, he affirmed, and I'll quote, because this is a really important thing and I'm so grateful to Pope Francis because he brings such clarity to this issue. The Pope wrote, and I quote, it needs to be emphasized that biological sex and the socio-cultural role of sex, that's gender, okay. Okay. can be distinguished but not separated. They can be distinguished but not separated. Hmm. He said, it is one thing to be understanding of human weakness and the complexities of life, and another to accept ideologies that attempt to sunder what are inseparable aspects of reality. Let us not fall into the sin of trying to replace the Creator. We are creatures and not omnipotent. Creation is prior to us and must be received as a gift. At the same time, we are called to protect our humanity. And this means, in the first place, accepting it and respecting it as it was created. Hmm. I mean, so this is all foundational. Before we, in our document, we talk about the procedures that we're addressing mm -hmm. regarding sex reassignment and all that kind of stuff. We have to understand this anthropological background, Christian anthropology, that there is this fundamental order and finality that we have to respect. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about patients, doctors, physicians, researchers, 
this idea of having unlimited rights over the body, that's very, very problematic. Even back in the 1940s, 50s, I think, Pope Pius Twelfth, so this is decades ago, taught that the patient is not the absolute master of himself, of his body, of his mind. He cannot dispose of himself just as he pleases. Mm. We, again, were not the owners. So we don't have an unlimited power to, for example, or right to destroy or mutilate ourselves. The body's not an object, a mere tool at the disposal of the soul. This is constitutive of our human personhood. So we are to receive and respect and care for this as a gift that's intrinsic to us, basically accepting our bodies as God's gift. Now, in our moral tradition, there are two basic scenarios when it comes to technological interventions on the human body. Because you can say, well, there are some times where you can use technology and it's morally justified, obviously. And the first, and this is very important, these two are really crucial to understand. The first is when such interventions aim to repair a defect in the body. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is, I think, Everyone accepts this, you know. If we could fix somebody's vision or their hearing or their fertility or something is wrong with your body, if we can fix it, great. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And the second, and I'll get into this a little bit more, both of them, but just to mention it right now, the second is when the sacrifice of a part of the body is necessary for the welfare of the whole body. Mm -hmm. Case of amputation of a leg, for example. You can't amputate a leg because, oh, I don't like my leg. Right. But, you know, if there's gangrenous leg and Mm -hmm. there's dangers to the, the survival of the person, it can be amputated. But notice in both of these scenarios, the technological intervention is respecting the fundamental order and finality that's inherent in the human person. But there are technological interventions that don't do this, that don't repair a defect in the body, nor sacrifice a part for the sake of the whole. Their sole aim is to fundamentally change the order of the body. Mm -hmm. And that's what we consider immoral. So let's look first at that repairing a defect of Mm -hmm. the body. Oftentimes, this will be because of a disease or maybe an injury. Mm -hmm. So there's this attempt to repair, and this is very commendable. This is good. Actually, we all have a duty to care for our bodies. And so in the ethical and religious directives for Catholic health care services, this is, so for listeners who don't know what they are, we refer to them often as the ERDs. These are the ethical and religious directives that all Catholic healthcare institutions must follow. Okay. Okay. So they're really important. This is a big document. It, no, it's 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 not real long, but I mean, it ha- it's probably you know twenty twenty five pages, but okay. it has the ethical things. So that if you're going to go to a Catholic hospital, 
you can trust that they're following the ERDs. Mm -hmm. I mean, for example, in our diocese, the I have made these particular law for the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend. So any Catholic healthcare institution or diocese must follow these. Sure. Is that true in every diocese? It depends on the bishop if he's made them particular law or not. But but even if the bishop hasn't technically done that, I mean, it's kind of understood yeah. that all Catholic healthcare institutions, it's just better to make it into particular law okay. because just canonically that's... That's safer, I would say. And if they wouldn't abide by that, would they have to remove Catholic yeah, from their name? Is right. That, I mean, okay. the bishop, I mean, if, for example, if if one of our, and that, this wouldn't happen, but let's say, I mean, one of the ARDs prohibits direct abortion. So mm -hmm. let's say a hospital, Catholic hospital said, no, we're going to do abortions. Well, then they could no longer call themselves Catholic. Right. I mean, I would declare that. Yeah. But that's just a simple example. Mm -hmm. In, in the ERDs, we affirm that every person is obliged to use ordinary means to preserve his or her health. Ordinary means. I think a lot of people understand the church talks and on these ethical matters about ordinary and extraordinary means. If the benefits of the intervention aren't proportionate to the burdens involved, then the obligation no longer holds. So that's a judgment that needs to be made in particular situations. So when we look at the morality of interventions undertaken to improve the body, we have to look at the situation and evaluate, is this going to be a benefit to the person? And what are the burdens? So you look at the expected benefits. You look at, you know, for example, better health, better functioning. Mm -hmm. And does that outweigh the expected burdens, the pain involved, the cost, all mm -hmm. those kind of things. So, so you make these, you know, moral decisions, but again, we're bound to use ordinary means. And that's, you know, I think most people, especially end of life decisions, these become important, but you can also look at this as far as interventions to improve the body's functioning, but also what about those interventions just that are to improve the appearance of the body? Mm. And actually, Pius Twelfth said, okay, physical beauty, that's, that's a good, mm. but there are other things more important, <laughs> you know? And that's not at the summit that's, that's of the scale of values. <laughs> well, we we'll get here into like cosmetic surgery, right, right. things which like I thought that. was interesting that that made it in this document. Yeah, but, because it is kind of important to yeah. to see. Obviously, these cosmetic things, there's no duty to do those things. Mm -hmm. But you have to be be clear that this is not going to be a risky. I mean, for example, the risk to one's health to improve the body that. Then it becomes a, a morally problematic thing because sure. like, it, it, it shouldn't have that kind of importance in mm -hmm. a person's life that they would take unnecessary risks so that they look better or right. appear more beautiful or whatever. So you have to have the correct intention here. You have to look at the concrete circumstances. I, I um, imagine there's a line between vanity and just continue like not being happy with how you look right. versus there's been some kind of physical damage. Like, like right. you mentioned, if you were in an accident or something like that and they wanted to repair something. Yeah. Like let's say you get burned yeah. and you have plastic surgery, et cetera. That's good. I mean, but you know, if you have other motives, 
you have to kind of say, okay, you know, the risk of this, the the negative effects or the cost of it, sure. make it like, you know, that's not right. necessary, you know, so... So that's the first thing. Again, that's to repair a defect in the body. Now, mm -hmm. the second is sacrificing a part for the sake of the whole. Mm -hmm. So here we get into the idea of mutilation or destroying or mutilating part of one's body. The only time that would be allowed is when the welfare of the body as a whole is at stake. Mm -hmm. I use the example of an amputation. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Pius Twelfth, and we stipulated three conditions that must be fulfilled for a medical intervention that involves anatomical or functional mutilation to be morally permissible. And this was a really important talk that Pius XII gave back in 1953. And these criteria, these three conditions, I mean, we're still following them because they make total sense. Number one, the retention or functioning of a particular organ in the organism as a whole causes serious damage to it or constitutes a threat. So again, I'll get back to that amputation example. You know, you have to retain that leg, for example, that is a threat then yeah. to the survival of the person, their body, their whole body. That's why we would allow in that situation amputation. Mm -hmm. We see this with removal of, you know, mastectomies. Mm -hmm. Another example, removal of the breasts in order to save the life of the whole right. person. Uh, cancer examples or right. kidneys and right. things like that. Removal, Appendix. Hysterectomies, <laughs> sure. all those things. But the second condition, this damage cannot be avoided or at least appreciably diminished otherwise than by the mutilation in question, and the effectiveness of the mutilation is well assured. Mm -hmm. And third, it can reasonably be expected that the negative effect, that is the mutilation and its consequences, will be compensated for by the positive effect, which is removal of the danger for the whole organism or lessening of suffering. Mm -hmm. So when you look at these conditions, they ensure proper respect for the fundamental order of the human person. Right. In that they establish that the sacrifice of the part of the body isn't really in itself what's being sought. It's really a last resort that's necessary for the welfare of the whole body. And there's no other option right. for securing the welfare of the body as a whole. So I think these moral teachings, these criteria that are so helpful to us. So what are we facing today? We're, we're facing, though, attempts to alter the fundamental order of the human body. And this is what is so problematic. In other words, there are these interventions today that regards this fundamental order as in some way unsatisfactory. And they want a more desirable order, a redesigned order. Hmm. Think about some of the proposals for genetic engineering. Right. Now, some things with genetic engineering, they're trying to repair a defect. Sure. So that's fine. Sure. But, but there are also these purposes other than medical treatment, and they're not morally permissible. 
that are not morally licit. So to attempt to replace the natural order with what is imagined to be a new and better order is really, really problematic. And I really worry about like with some of the things with genetic engineering, like yeah. where are we going? Yeah. So the church warns that, and this is a quote from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the Congregation warns that in the attempt to create a new type of human being, one can recognize an ideological element in which man tries to take the place of his creator. Mm. In a similar way, some proposals for cybernetic enhancement also aim to redesign the fundamental order of the human being and to produce a new type of human being by replacing some or all bodily organs with artificial devices. And some of this is being considered. Some are even envisioning transferring what they imagine to be the essence of the human person from the brain into a computer, mm. thereby leaving bodily existence behind. Hmm. I mean, this is talk about, you know, brave new world. Right. I mean, very, very problematic. But what's of greatest concern, what we're focusing on in this document, because it's widely in practice today, is the, the technological interventions that many are advocating as treatment for gender dysphoria, mm-hmm. gender incongruence. So here we have surgical techniques or chemical techniques that aim to exchange the sex characteristics of a patient's body for those of the opposite sex or for simulations thereof. In the case of children, our document says, the exchange of sex characteristic is prepared by the administration of chemical puberty blockers, Mm -hmm. which arrest the natural course of puberty and prevent the development of some sex characteristics in the first place. Mm. Now, we did a lot of study of the research in this area and studies that have been done, and some of them aren't long enough yet, but you know, we've seen already some of the negative effects, even on the heart and stuff like that. There's certain studies, but we didn't want to get into a lot of that medical stuff because this is a document that's really moral teaching. Right. But I would encourage people, you know, to also look at the scientific data about the harms that are potential harms. In any event, we're looking at it even if there weren't, you know, those harms. Yeah. But these interventions are not morally justified because, first of all, there's not an attempt to repair a defect in the body, nor is there an attempt to sacrifice a part of the body for the sake of the whole. So, first of all, they don't, there's not a defect in the body. There's not a disorder that needs to be addressed because the bodily organs are normal. They're healthy. Mm-hmm. And they don't, as I said, sacrifice one part of the body for the good of the whole. You know, to remove or reconfigure a bodily organ, you know, should only be if there's a, a serious threat to the body. And there isn't in these transgender situations. Mm-hmm. The idea is to just remove or reconfigure because of a person has these desires. We don't want to get into the science here, but say if their theory is the damage that it's doing is psychological, 
and that this is going to fix that cycle. So like using your own case as a defense, manipulating their body is going to fix the broken thing and put them in congruence with the psychological discongruence. Right. Still would not justify it because, for example, when someone has body integrity identity disorder, Mm. you know, let's say a person believes, okay, I'll be better off if I get my arm amputated. Right. Which sounds like a made up thing, but this is a real thing. Oh, it's a real real thing. thing. Yeah. There are these disorders. There's an alienation from one's body. And that's what happens in gender dysphoria Mm -hmm. also. Now, I don't know of any doctors that will amputate a limb because a person just feels that they'd be better off without an arm or a leg, but maybe a person would be psychologically better, you know, but that still doesn't justify it. Right. Okay. Is that really serving the good of the person? Right. Because they have this false notion. It's also, you know, you don't affirm someone in a falsehood. If someone thinks that they're, okay, they're like starving themselves because they think they're too heavy and they're really not. Yeah. So they have this eating disorder. Do you tell them that what they are feeling is, is true? Right. No. Cause telling them that you're heart, you're doing harm. Yeah. You so I think you could say this also with gender dysphoria. You don't confirm their eating disorder and encourage it. Right. You would, right. You try to help them through the. But for some reason, our culture is now affirming a falsehood Mm -hmm. when it comes to treating gender dysphoria. Okay, so really when you talk about these, quote, gender-affirming interventions, which involve, you know, surgical or chemical ways, attempting to alter the fundamental order and finality of the body, replace it with something else, No, we will not accept this. Now, people who are experiencing this issue, some will seek some treatments, maybe not go through all of the interventions that are available. Maybe some will just do chemicals. Some will go all the way and having surgery, have their breasts removed or other genital things, et cetera, reassignment. But we're we're basically saying that all of these are illicit because... They have the same basic purpose, mm-hmm. which is to transform sex characteristics of the body into those of the opposite sex. Mm-hmm. They don't respect the fundamental order of the human person as an intrinsic unity of body and soul with a body that's sexually differentiated. Again, bodiliness is a fundamental aspect of human existence, and so is the sexual differentiation of the body. So we say that Catholic healthcare services must not perform these kinds of interventions, whether surgical or chemical. These interventions that aim to transform the sexual characteristics of a human body into those of the opposite sex. So what do we do? We should use all the resources we can to mitigate the suffering of those who struggle with gender incongruence, the means that we use to help them must always respect the fundamental order of the human body. Mm. If we really are showing full respect for the dignity of each human person, 
then we should only use morally appropriate means. We need to use moral criteria regarding the use of technology. And we always have to do it according to the fundamental order of the created world. This should not be seen as in any way minimizing the real problems, the real suffering of people with gender dysphoria or gender incongruence. We don't believe that the approach of these illicit interventions actually fulfill the purpose that further problems, and we see this, you know, think about the Hippocratic tradition in medicine. First and foremost, do no harm. Right. Do no harm. So we believe that these interventions harm the human person. And we really have to protect children and mm -hmm. adolescents because they're still maturing. You know, or do they even ha have the capacity to provide informed consent? I mean, Pope Francis has taught, he says, really, young people especially need to be helped to accept their own body as it was created. We have to continue to search for solutions to the problem of suffering that some people are undergoing. You know, I think it's important to keep looking at ways in which we can help people who struggle with gender dysphoria. I think Catholic healthcare services, especially, you know, especially the areas of psychology, to try to provide the best medical care and to accompany these people with compassion, you know, that's basically Catholic healthcare. It's to continue the healing ministry of Jesus. So I hope that's clear and helpful to everyone. Yeah. And I think the background that you provide in the document is really helpful, not just for this case, but there's a lot of other things that it applies to as well. But I, I think it's, it's laid out very logically of walking people through this natural law and different cases that are allowed and are not allowed and why. And I think, I think people will find it helpful. Uh, you can find that at usccb.org slash, it is a little bit of a mouthful. We'll have links in, in the show notes, but Doctrine Guidance to Catholic Health. So usccb.org slash Doctrine Guidance to Catholic Health. There's a short little letter or description there and then a link to the actual document, which I, th I think it's like 11 pages. Or yeah, something. it's not real long. So it's called Doctrinal Note on the Moral Limits to Technological Manipulation of the Human Body. <laughs> very, yeah. A very... Uh, thorough title. Yeah. But again, we'll have links in the description of this podcast. You can find that at spokestreet.com slash askbishop. You can find all past episodes of the show as well as the notes on this episode and links. Yeah. But uh, thank you for breaking that down for us, Bishop. Appreciate You're welcome. It. You know, I want to mention too that, you know, some European countries were, quote, ahead of the U.S. and in, in, in some of these gender centers that they have in doing these kinds of illicit procedures. Mm -hmm. And some of them have seen the damage done and have closed them mm. in both England and Sweden, Wow, you know, because, you know, it's kind of the political part of it, the ideological part of it. I would even, again, we don't get into the science, but I would assert it's not even good. It's not good science. Yeah. I have met, you know, it's tragic, a person who did go through some surgical and chemical stuff that really regrets it mm. and those voices are not being heard because it's not politically and so much of it's the ideology oh yeah you know like there's some things that could potentially be reversed but a lot of that is doing permanent change and you know i would argue damage yeah to the body yeah all right well thank you for sharing this with us and hopefully people just find it helpful and and can read through the document if it 
especially anybody in the medical profession. Be really good to read. Before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. It was engineered by Nicole Rudolph, produced by Miriam Schmitz, and edited by Tony Marks for Spoke Street Media. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.